Hey listeners, thanks for tuning in. I'm Tony Shang, and we're here with another episode of Why We Work, a podcast where we interview people to understand why they do what they do and how they do it. Lately, I've been spending a lot of my time thinking about how I can better accomplish my goal of inspiring people to do more of what they enjoy through this podcast and other things. Um, So I'm experimenting with applying more structure and editing to each of these episodes. I was and continue to be inspired by Alex Bloomberg of Giblet Media. You might have heard of his podcast, Startup, and want to bring more storytelling to this podcast. I'll probably start small as I'm limited by my capabilities. As with all things, you don't get good at them until you're good. So I'm going to try my best and I'll rely on you to tell me whether it's working or not. Tell me what you like and what you hate on Twitter at Tony Shang. On to our guest, Alan Perlman. I am the marketing director at Extreme Inbound. We're a small boutique inbound marketing agency, and we help our clients uh, generate more website traffic and more sales-ready leads for their business. In addition to being a savvy marketer, Alan is an adventurer who has made some tough decisions about his career, quitting a job he loved that took him to 50 different countries to join a marketing company in Boston that he also loved to leave that and start an agency in New York. I made kind of a, a, a calculated risky choice to leave that company without having something lined up. We also talk about what he has learned in the first year of starting his first company. Everything from getting good legal and financial advice to strategies of managing time to learn how and when to ask for help. Alan has a track record of leaping headfirst into things he doesn't know much about. So if fear is stopping you from doing something, this is a fantastic conversation for you. Let's start with uh, tell me who you are and what do you do? Sure. Uh, my name is Alan Perlman, and I am the marketing director at Extreme Inbound. We're a small boutique inbound marketing agency, and we help our clients uh, generate more website traffic and more sales-ready leads for their business. Uh, for somebody who isn't in the marketing world, what does that mean? So inbound marketing is all about creating amazing content to bring people into your brand rather than doing kind of the traditional marketing. I mean, if you think about commercials, advertisements, magazine ads, even sort of banner advertisements or paid ads that people are taking out with Google, um, somebody like Seth Godin would call that interruption marketing. And, and what inbound marketing, it's, it's like putting up this big magnet and out-educating your competitors and creating remarkable content that really caters to people at, at different parts of your, your buying process, right? So if you're selling widgets, uh, some people are going to be ready to buy widgets right then and there on the spot. The vast majority of people want to check out your website, right? They want to see what you're about, what your story is. Um, and, and there's a bit of a buying process there. So I help companies figure out kind of what that buying process is and who their ideal customers are. And then I help them create content sort of mapped to those personas and, and buying processes. Cool. How did you get into this line of work? Um, I joined a company called HubSpot back in 2011. And fortunate for me, HubSpot's kind of the pioneer of the term inbound marketing and, and the methodology behind that. They also have a great software platform that helps companies uh, actually execute on inbound marketing. So I uh, was, was going through a bit of a career change and knew that I wanted to get into the marketing world uh, for a number of reasons. So when I started poking around, HubSpot kept coming up over and over and over again. And I was living in Boston at the time. 
And uh, I started working there. Long story short, worked there for a couple of years and uh, ended up branching off and, and moving to New York and, and starting my own company. I'm still very much affiliated with HubSpot. I'm like a certified HubSpot partner. So we definitely do uh, business together, but I'm kind of off on my own, running my own brand. Uh, tell, tell me about that career change. So out of college, I had <laughs> I had the most amazing job in the world, Tony. It's kind of ridiculous when I talk about it and when I think about it. I was paid to travel the world. Um, and in three years, I went to something like uh, 50 or 60 different countries. I was working for a global mobility consulting firm where uh, I was helping to analyze the cost of living in different parts of the globe. So the, the company's clients were mostly, you know, Fortune 100 companies that needed consulting and sort of cost of living allowance adjustment data um, for their cross-border transfers. So when we spoke last week, I sort of gave you an example. It's something like, you know, hey, Tony, you're doing a great job here at Coca-Cola. Um, we need you to move to Cairo, Egypt for the next three years with your family to work on building up operations there. And apparently that conversation happens quite a bit <laughs> with these really large companies. And there's a very small niche industry around sort of the data and consulting around those, um, those personnel movements across borders. So I worked as a surveyor for this company. I was on the ground capturing data, meeting with clients, going into supermarkets and pharmacies and car dealerships, meeting with store managers, writing down prices. Uh, one of my favorite things to do was to meet with real estate agents. We had to meet with you know, a few different sources in every city that we would survey and learn about the market. What was inflation like? What were the expatriate neighborhoods of choice? Uh, what are the different market considerations in this city versus that city and, and so on and so forth? So I'd go on four different trips a year. Um, and between trips, it, it was a lot of just sort of data processing and, and writing up reports and then preparing for the next trip. And I absolutely loved that job. It was a dream opportunity out of college. I was young. I was single. I had my passport ready, and I just, I loved it. Um, when I started working there, I knew that I was going to have a lot of cool experiences, and I had studied abroad in college and, and started a blog um, in an effort to keep in touch with friends and family. At first, I thought about creating like an email list, um, but I figured I'd probably forget somebody's email address, and I didn't want to upset anybody, so it was easier for me to sort of put my stories into a public blog and say, if you want to find out what I'm up to, you're more than welcome to check out this link. And that's kind of how I positioned it. Um, so I had done that while studying abroad, and I figured I'd do it while traveling. You know, a year or so into the job, um, I was getting emails from random people, um, just about the most random things. It was great. You know, people who had either been to some of the places I had been to, uh, people who were planning to trips, planning trips, uh, like places to, you know, Turkmenistan or Rwanda, and they wanted to get my take on their itinerary. Um, friends of people who I had met on the road. It just, it really opened up my eyes to to blogging and kind of the power of, you know, pressing publish online and what that meant. So, you know, over three years, uh, while I was traveling, I was writing a blog. I was sort of teaching myself about email marketing and social media and search engine optimization. The travel blogging scene at the time was really starting to take off with websites like uh, nomadicmat.com. He was kind of the first big travel blogger that, that I learned about. And this guy was making really good money running this website. And I know he still runs it full time, among other projects that he's working on. So... 
I knew that I wanted to learn more about the space. Um, I was kind of reaching my tenure in that in that role as a cost of living surveyor. Most people who work in that job do it anywhere from you know two to maybe three or four years. Um, four years is kind of on the rare side. And um, sort of the traditional track is for people to transition from surveying into the client services role um, or a more analytical role within the company. And I was approaching year three knowing that I wanted to sort of transition out of this, this traveling role. Um, and I looked at opportunities within the company specifically in a marketing function. Uh, the company had a very small marketing team. I was already doing some side projects for them. Um, trying to get them started with their own internal blog and social media accounts. And, you know, I realized, and I think um, my girlfriend at the time, now she's my wife, she gave me a great piece of advice. She said, if you want to do marketing, you have to work for a marketing company. You know, if you want to do anything, you have to work for a company or an organization that specializes in that one thing. And I really took that to heart. And I made kind of a, a, a calculated risky choice to leave that company without having something lined up. And the reason I did that is because I figured I had saved a bit of money. Um, I was traveling a ton in that role, so it was really hard for me to do the kind of research and, and sort of informational interviews it would take to really understand what it is about marketing that I wanted to learn more about, what the opportunities were in the Boston area and the New York area. So I, I sort of quit cold turkey on a Friday and I woke up on Monday morning and realized that I needed to start learning more about this marketing business. So I emailed every person I knew in the marketing space. I hopped on LinkedIn. I put together a spreadsheet of all the marketing and advertising and PR companies and for three months, um, I was, uh, you know, traveling to New York. I was interviewing in Boston. And that was sort of my process. Um, again, I say calculated risk because, um, you know, friends and family and, and even the CEO of that company that I left were asking me, you know, what are you doing? You're leaving a perfectly paying job. You know, nobody in today's day and age, particularly after the market crash, would leave a perfectly paying, a perfectly good job without having something lined up. Um, but I knew that I had to do it. I knew that I needed that freedom. I needed uh, to feel like I needed to hustle. You know, I needed that sort of 8 a.m. wake up call on a Monday morning, knowing that I wasn't going to have any money coming in that week or that month. I needed that to push me to, to get to the next step. Hmm. Well, tell me about the decision to uh, quit and go off on your own. Because it was the first time that you'd been, you know, an entrepreneur of it, right? Correct. Yeah. I mean, I, I'd like to think that I, I've been dabbling in entrepreneurship for a while. Um, I helped found a, a company in college as part of like a student business uh, contest. Um, I've worked on a lot of side projects, um, kind of on the online space since uh, 2007, 2008. But yeah, I mean, this was really my first attempt to, you know, wholeheartedly 110% build a company, right? This wasn't a side project. This was this was my career. So Alan left a job that he loved to get into marketing. He loved his job in marketing, and then he moved to NYC to start a completely new company. So the question on my mind was, how was that different? What, how, how did that feel different? Starting a company isn't for everybody. By the way, shortly after Alan left, HubSpot IPO'd for over a billion dollars. 
So Alan was in a great position to ride that wave or go to business school. So I asked Alan what it felt like when he left. How, how is that so, different mentally? Um, there's a lot more pressure. You know, it's, it's a lot easier to say, oh, I'm working on this side project. I don't care if it takes off or not. Um, and it was really easy for me to say that when I had a full-time job and on nights and weekends, I was, you know, thinking about different business models and starting, you know, really small niche websites and trying to attract audiences and sort of validate different ideas. Um, but when you're doing it for yourself and you're relying on that income and on that brand to take off from day one, um, you know, it's scary and, and a lot more energy gets, gets put into it. I think... Um, when you and I spoke last week, we talked about prioritization and when it's, when it's your business, when you wake up in the morning and, and you know that it has to succeed, side projects go out the window, right? It's, it's the number one prioritization. And that was a really sort of clear distinction for me between a side project and, and my business. Did you, how did you know what to prioritize when you were just starting out? That's a great question. Um, you know, marketers love branding. And as a marketer, I was thinking about my logo. I was thinking about my business cards, about how sexy my website looked. But I knew that I needed cash. <laughs> I was moving to New York. Uh, who moves to New York to start a business, by the way? It's one of the most expensive cities in the world. Why would I do that? Dude, tell me um, that. I'm moving to San Francisco with nothing <laughs> in two weeks, which is what are we? What are we doing? Crazy. Why don't we move? Uh, why don't we move to you know Austin, Texas, Nashville, Tennessee, Charlotte, North Carolina, like Chiang you know, Mai. Good... <laughs> yeah, Chiang Mai. There you go. Absolutely. Um, so. So to back up for a second, um, I, I had a sort of a, I'm going to go off on a tangent. I had sure. a bit of a crisis of conscience when I was deciding to leave my first job. I thought that I wanted to go to business school. I studied real hard for the GMAT. Um, I was looking at a lot of different schools and thinking about like, okay, I've sort of dabbled in these entrepreneurial side projects. I have a really cool three-year track record at this amazing company. I should apply. Like what a fun experience that would be. Um, Ultimately, I decided not to apply to business school, um, mostly because I just I, I couldn't justify kind of the opportunity cost of not making money for two years and, and being in that much debt and sort of what that meant for me coming out of school. I couldn't come to terms with that, and I know that's sort of a contentious topic, and we can talk more about that if you like, but that's that kind topic. of the, the, the short, short version. So what I did instead was I, I knew that I wanted to learn more about business. I discovered this, uh, this program called the Personal MBA. And if you go to personalmba.com, you'll find a guy by the name of Josh Kaufman who put together this kind of manifesto about uh, what it means to have a business education. And if you want kind of a top quality business education, what resources do you need to consume? Kind of like the 80-20 rule, right? It's like, what's that 20% of content out there that I should be reading to get 80% of the business savviness that, that I would need if I wanted to become a stronger business person. So I started working my way through his reading list and it's always a list of uh, like a hundred books and it changes every year. And um, I mean, right now I'm only, you know, halfway through it. I think I've only read 46 or 47 of those books, but it's so interesting, Tony. Uh, he breaks it down by category and uh, I read all the startup books first, obviously. And in all the startup books, all the authors are saying the same thing when it comes to building a business. Uh, they're all focused on cash flow. 
They said it doesn't matter what your logo is. It doesn't matter what your brand is. It doesn't even matter what you're selling sometimes because your ultimate vision for a company might be five or ten years from now when in reality you need cash right now. And that's kind of like the bootstrapping model. I knew that I wasn't the type of person to, to put together a business plan and to seek VC funding and sort of head that route. I very much wanted to build something where I was cash flow positive from day one. So kind of a long-winded answer to your original question. Um, but, you know, when I was thinking about those first few weeks of being a business owner, I wasn't concerned with my business cards or my logo or my website. I was concerned with picking up the phone and making calls to family members and to friends and reaching out to contacts that I had made while working at HubSpot and letting everybody know what I was up to and what I could offer. And I feel like I was kind of lucky because HubSpot really trained me to be a jack-of-all-trades marketer. So even if I didn't feel entirely comfortable taking on a project that somebody had, I would raise my hand and say yes. So am I a website developer? Not really, not compared to, you know, really amazing marketing agencies that focus on website development. But can I build websites? Hell yeah. So when, when I was approached by a friend of mine who knew somebody who was opening up a liquor store outside of Boston and they needed a website, you know, I jumped at the opportunity. I didn't even know how to scope that out. I didn't even know, you know, how to price it. I just said, yes, I'll do it. Let's talk. And then I set a call date, you know, three days later, and that gave me 72 hours to figure out what I was supposed to do. Um, so, yeah, those first few weeks, I was very much focused on cash, and, and that sort of carried me through my, my... Did you have any doubt that you'd be able to pull it off? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I think it's important to consider plan B and to kind of play that worst-case scenario game. And in my mind... Um, when I left HubSpot, I knew that if I looked at kind of my existing sort of financial situation, you know, I could, I could afford my lifestyle in New York for like four months comfortably and like six to nine or maybe 12 months if I went on a ramen and beans diet and shut my phone off and didn't see any of my friends um, or and didn't fly anywhere to visit, you know, family during the year. So... In my mind, that was kind of the worst case scenario, and I was I was very scared to leave a you know a great paying job to start my own company. But once I had that on paper and I knew what I could afford, like what kind of chance I could take, it made it a little bit easier. So, but budgeting and understanding how much freedom you had, um, like quieted that survival pragmatism. It did, and I figured. Um, that's a really good way to put it. I also figured that if I failed, at least I could say that I tried. And at the end of the day, I had HubSpot on my resume, great company in the marketing space, great brand equity. Um, I could probably find another paying job in New York. And if I couldn't, there's always the service industry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For what it's worth, any, any, anyone listening, I, if you haven't worked in the service industry, I recommend it. I mean, it was, it was one of my first jobs um, you know, 17, 18 years old, I had done a bunch of odd jobs. I worked in an ice cream store for a year. Um, but it wasn't until I started waiting tables that I really started learning a lot. I mean, you know, having to deal with customers, having to work in a high pace environment, um, dealing with the chaos of the management staff and the kitchen. And I learned a lot working in the service industry. And, you know, I, I figured, uh, you know, there are a lot of restaurants and coffee shops in, in the New York 
area. So worst case scenario, I could probably walk the streets and find something if I really, really needed to. What uh, do, do you do you have a mission or like a an organizing principle in your life that helps you that helps guide you through your decisions? That's a great question. Um, the answer is yes, with kind of an asterisk. Are you familiar with Simon Sinek? Yeah. Yeah, so he has this idea of kind of the golden circle, right? Why, how, and what. And my, my manager at HubSpot, my last manager, uh, Mark, was a Simon Sinek evangelist, and he really <laughs> trained us to think about why, how, and what. Not just uh, projects at work, but our, our lives, right? So I would have these one-on-one meetings with my manager, and, you know, for 80% of the time, we'd talk about what was going on at work, but then he'd say, all right, what are you doing outside of work? How is what you're doing outside of work related to what you're doing here? Is there synergy? Are you working toward a greater purpose? Um, I had never thought that way before. I thought that success meant lots of money and freedom and travel and happy people surrounding me. I never sort of thought of success as coming to terms with what my reason for living on this earth is. And knowing that every day I wake up, I'm actively working toward that. So I'm saying yes with an asterisk because I recognize that I'm, I'm sort of working toward that, but I'm still, I still feel sort of a disconnect in, in what I'm doing now and what my ultimate sort of purpose is. Um, so kind of a, a related tangent. Uh, I st- one of these side projects that I started a couple of years ago is an extreme sports website. Nerve Rush. Uh, NerveRush.com, right? your guide to gut-wrenching adventure. <laughs> I love that. Um, and um, I started it because I, I was an armchair adrenaline junkie, right? I was living in Boston. I was working a full-time job, and I didn't have time to, you know, go to the mountains and spend two or three weeks ice climbing or, you know, becoming a certified skydiver. You know, there was, like, all these things that I was really fascinated by um, but felt like I wasn't able to do, and I feel like a lot of listeners can probably relate, Right. Um, so I figured like, okay, I'm looking at these YouTube videos anyway, I might as well create a brand and sort of put those YouTube videos on a site and see if there are other people out there like me. Um, and there are, and I, I still run the site. It's, it's kind of my flagship side project when I'm not working on my business and servicing my clients. I'm working, you know, mostly on nerve rush. And I think that's my purpose. I think my purpose is is less about sort of direct client service work and more about inspiring other people to lead these really adventurous, fulfilling lives. And, you know, it sounds idealistic. It sounds up in the clouds. But what I've realized is that people who have really strong guiding principles, who wake up with kind of this, this guiding purpose, um, they, they dream big and, and sort of have that sort of mantra, right? So my mantra right now is to lead an adventurous life and to, to do some of the things that I'm writing about on that website, but also to create a community where I'm inspiring others to do the same. How So uh, that, that reminds me of, did you hear the Tim Ferriss episode of Pure Diamondus of the XPRIZE? I did, yep. Where Did you remember the part where he's talking about, um, Tim is like, you know, a lot of people don't know what their passion is, and you talk a lot about passion, like what would you tell them? And he says, oh, that's really easy. There are two questions that I ask them. The first is, um, if you, if I gave you a billion dollars and I said, you can, 
you like you would do whatever you want with it for now like have fun pay off your bills do whatever but then for the rest of it you have to spend it on changing the world in a positive way one thing like what would it be and that that's 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 his first one and the second one is something around like childhood like what did you like to do as a kid and that's right yep the the um the union of the two is like you know the billion dollar one is about impact the childhood one is about process and like the things that you actually like to do so somewhere if you can do the process and move towards the impact that's like the sweet spot of where you should direct your passion i thought that was super insightful yeah i loved that interview um and it, it reminds me of a Venn diagram that I saw once where, and most people see the, this diagram with two circles where you've got, you know, what you're really, really good at on the left and what you're really, really passionate about on the right. And you want to be in the middle, right? You want to be working towards something you're really passionate about. But I saw something else with a third circle and that third circle is impact hmm. because, and, and that sort of brings in the purpose, right? It's, it's, you want to do what you're good at. Uh, you want to do what you're passionate about, but you also want to be trying to make the world a better place. Right. It's like, what's what's the purpose of, of waking up in the morning if you're not actively trying to better the world around you and to make people happier and to leave sort of a, a lasting impression, you know, a small dent in the universe, if you will. What? um, How old are you now? Twenty nine. I had to think about that for a second because I just turned twenty nine. <laughs> um, what what would you what kind of advice would you give your 20 year old self? Um, what was I doing at age 20? I was, I was in college. I was goofing off quite a bit like most college students do. Um, you know, one thing that I wished I would have done more of at age 20, and I even struggle with it now, is picking up the phone and calling, uh, you know, kind of a mentor type figure or somebody in a different industry that you want to learn more about. Um, I, I wish that I would have connected with more people back then to sort of, uh, advance my my knowledge and sort of my progression to where I'm at right now. I feel like I could have benefited from the guidance of having more of those conversations. You know, when I was, um, you know, 21, 22, looking at job opportunities, uh, you know, I was picking up the phone and making those phone calls, but I was sort of pressured because I knew I, I felt like that conversation would have to lead to a job, right? So I feel like at age 20 or even 19, 18, 17, I, I wish I would have sort of just had more of those conversations without kind of a a goal attached to it you know what i mean yeah it was it was such as like it was binary you were either having conversations that were just for fun like with your friends in college and it was really rare to have a serious conversation with air quotes and then all of a sudden everybody was telling you you got to network and you got to like find opportunities to interview and then practice for your interviews and become this very pre-professional version of yourself that you had never seen before and at least that was my experience and a lot of my friends experienced at Amherst. Um, and you complete, I completely missed out of that, that middle bucket where it's like, just, you can have sincere conversations with a lot of people that have interesting things to say and do interesting things and see how that relates to you and whether you can help them or they can help you. And it doesn't even have to be like that. Just like dabbling through the lives of others is this really valuable thing that costs you nothing. It costs them nothing. Um, and can open up a lot of opportunities. Absolutely. I mean, I love having coffee with somebody that I've never met before. Um, I love it when people reach out to me and say, hey, you know, this is what I'm up to. I see what you're up to. Like, let's chat. Even if there's no agenda, um, 
you know, I'm at a, I'm at the point in my life now where I still kind of have a, some flexibility to how I structure my days. I, I want that to always be that way. I know a lot of people would try to protect their time and to say, no, I, I don't take those kind of meetings or, you know, they, they evaluate it like I'm only going to meet with you if there's a certain use to me. Um, and I've definitely had those thoughts before, but sometimes you don't know what's going to come of one of these conversations. So, yeah, I think my advice would be to sort of, you know, say yes and, and to take chances and to reach out to people you normally wouldn't. And I, I had that um, regret at HubSpot as well. When I started working at HubSpot, there were 300 people. When I left, there were 650 a couple of years later. Some of the smartest people I've met worked at HubSpot. And I feel really fortunate to have been surrounded by so many creative, like very eclectic backgrounds. And yeah, you know, I had lunches with people, you know, on my team and on peripheral teams, but I could have done a better job connecting with people that I didn't work with on a daily basis. Like, you know, meeting some of the developers or product managers or talking with some people on the support team. Um, I could have done a better job forging some of those relationships. What's the best investment that you've ever made? You know, immediately when you say investment, I think about I think about money, right? But investments can mean time. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be money. So I think. <laughs> All right, here's kind of a sappy answer for you. One of my best investments that I've made is the time that I put in courting my lady friend because now she is my wife and I'm super super happy. Um, but you know, like. It's worth mentioning, like, when you like somebody, and especially when you're dating long distance for two and a half years, um, there's a lot of, there has to be an investment, you know, emotionally and with your time um, in that long distance relationship. And it was a struggle. You know, I was was loving, loving my life in Boston. Um, I knew that there was something there when I was dating this girl, and I knew that I needed to make more of an investment that I had in previous relationships. And I'm happy to say that my investment has paid off in full. <laughs> That's great. And, and I'm, I'm still getting dividends. <laughs> <laughs> Advice to anyone thinking about starting a company? That is a good question. Um, I think that if you're going to start a company, you know, you need to have a plan, right? And, and that's kind of a, a given. But with that plan, you need to understand who your ideal customer is. Um, I'll back that statement up by talking a little bit about my experience as a consultant at HubSpot. So for my my first year, I was uh, kind of an onboarding specialist, right? So when somebody would buy HubSpot software, that company would get paired with somebody like me and we'd have conversations for like three to six months about how to weave that software into their current marketing and sales processes. So I was doing technical support. I was doing marketing consulting. What I realized is that when you ask CEOs of companies, when you ask chief marketing officers, who are you targeting? You know, who is your ideal customer? A lot of them have kind of a surface level answer and and don't feel comfortable going deeper because they've never really thought about kind of what it means to have a strong persona. Because um, you got to get past the demographic information, right? You're not selling to an 18 to 24 year old male in this income graphic who likes X, Y, and Z. You're selling to somebody who wakes up in the morning and experiences these specific pain points. And you're selling to somebody who 
goes to particular sources for their news and watches particular channels on TV to consume information and has these types of friends and engages in these types of extracurricular activities, there's a lot more to understanding kind of your target customer than uh, traditional marketing, right, where you just stop at demographics. So I love talking with people who are starting businesses because that's my first question. It's who are you targeting? What's keeping them up at night? Right? What are their real pain points and how are you going to help solve for them immediately? Um, I think all really strong business models start from that point. Yeah. Man, that, that was so hard for me to learn when I was first thinking about startups. It's because I think, I wonder if you ran into this too, reading all the startup books. There's, um, well, maybe you didn't because you saw such clear patterns in them, but I was reading all these blog posts, all these books, and it seemed like everybody had a different framework for how their company blew up and had different advice on how to pick an industry and pick a platform and like, you know, how to manage their tech stack and whether to do tech or something else. And I was, my, my head was swimming with different advice. And, uh, at the end of the day, it's like very simple. Um, like the execution is very challenging, but it's very simple. Like you, you find somebody with a problem that they care enough uh, about to pay somebody to solve that. And you see if you're one of the best people out there to solve that problem. And if you are, that's a good um, setup to, to create a company or create a product or service. And if it's not, then you probably shouldn't make anything. Right. I mean, you bring up a good point, though. Uh, there are a lot of great ideas out there, and there are a lot of people who are really good at identifying that opportunity, you know, that pain point, that like really acute pain point that they're going to go after, at least in the beginning. But the execution is so tough, <laughs> yeah. right? So I think about starting my business, and, you know, what was I really good at? Okay, spinning up a WordPress website, picking up the phone. Like, I'd like to think I'm okay on the phone, and I communicate pretty well via email. So, like, getting into some of those initial sales conversations was was more natural for me than it might be for other people. But when I think about accounting, when I think about like service delivery and, you know, objection handling in the heat of the moment, like I'm awful at that stuff. But I had to find ways to get good at it because uh, you know, it's your business and when you're running a business, you have to wear all of those different hats. So, I think I think part of my answer about advice to somebody starting a business is like you have to be cognizant of the fact that you are going to struggle through your weaknesses and you can account for, you can solve for those weaknesses by surrounding yourself with people who are strong in those subjects, um, by outsourcing, right, by knowing that you might have to pay money to have somebody design your website or to have somebody do your bookkeeping and accounting, or you're just going to have to put your put your nose down and, and learn how to do it, right, and, ma- and make your weaknesses become your strengths. And I know there are a lot of philosophies and frameworks around strengths versus weaknesses and, and leadership and pushing ideas forward. Um, but, yeah, I think it's important to sort of be aware that there are things about running a business that you're not going to be good at. You're not going to make a 100 amazing decisions, right? You're going to make maybe 10 or 15 amazing decisions, maybe 50 or 60 okay decisions, and the rest are going to be like really bad mistakes that you're going to learn from and hopefully not make again. What's your best strategy to make sure that you do get good work done? Um, You know, I think the hardest part about my position now is I work from home, and it sounds great, right? I'm I'm not wearing pants pants right now. I'm wearing pajama pants, which is fantastic. <laughs> but, you know, I, I eat here. I sleep here. I entertain myself here. I'm looking at my couch right now. It's a little chilly in here. There's a blanket on the couch. I've got Netflix uh, that I could absolutely turn on and, and stop doing work. 
So that's been a real struggle for me is figuring out how to maximize my time and get things done. So what I do, I guess my trick is on Sunday evening or first thing Monday morning, I look at my week and I, I look at my, my master action item list of things that need to get done and I block off times on my calendar and you know I'm not going to say that I'm 100% disciplined because I'm not. Like even today I had a two hour block scheduled for one of my clients and I moved it to tomorrow because I just wasn't in the mood to do that type of work today and I knew that I wasn't going to be as effective doing it. But if you look at my calendar, I mean, I, I try to live pretty religiously by my calendar when I can. And when I'm doing client work, I'm doing client work. My Gmail is shut down, uh, my phone is turned off, and I'm in, I'm, I'm, you know, I press start on my stopwatch and I work uninterrupted for, you know, say one hour, two hour, three hours on client work with small five minute breaks until that chunk is done on my calendar and then I can move on. So my most productive days are when I'm really disciplined and, and stick to my original plan for the week. What keeps you up at night? Um, you know, I still think a lot about my time and my money. Um, you know, I'm married now and I'm living in one of the most expensive cities in the U.S., and I, I only have, you know, we'll call it like four to five clients. And I rely on those four to five clients uh, for my lifestyle right now, you know, for savings that I'm putting away for my future dog. Um, I'm shopping around future for the dog. dog. <laughs> uh, for, my, for my future kid, right, which, which will happen in the next few years. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I think a lot about money, you know. So it doesn't keep me up at night. Um, but I'm very aware that let's say in a two week period, I could get phone calls from two of my clients, which represents 40% of my business. And they could say, Hey, Alan, it's been great working with you, but X happened and we need to postpone our relationship, right? It's not like I'm a, a salaried employee at a company. I don't have that job security. So what keeps me up at night is trying to figure out how can I get from, uh, you know, four to five clients to four to five hundred clients, um, you know, paying, you know, di different business model, right? right. Where, where my job is a little bit more secure. So you, you read a lot of books. I do. What are the books that have had the biggest impact on your life? Or maybe a better question to ask is what, what's the book that you recommend most? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, when, when somebody says, can you recommend a book? I usually say, you know, what are you looking for? Fiction, nonfiction? What are you struggling with right now? Um, I like to read a lot of different things. Like right now, I'm, I'm reading Sherlock Holmes, um, kind of the complete works huh. of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Um, I read them as a kid, but uh, I have a much stronger appreciation for, uh, you know, his storytelling now than I did back then. So, um, I've been on a nonfiction binge the last few years, and I'm trying to inject more fiction into into my life. But I think the book that I recommend or have recommended most is probably the Four Hour Work Week. It's so cliche. I know a lot of people in my space um, talk about this book, but for those listening who aren't familiar with the Four Hour Work Week, it's just a really cool way to think about building a business and to think about these sort of experimental approach. Um, you know, it's so much easier to validate ideas today than it ever has been. 
right? Like to be able to create a website, you don't need to be a coder, right? You need to sign up uh, at Wix.com or Squarespace or WordPress and spend a few hours reading how to do it. And like any Joe Schmo with average intelligence can like build a pretty good looking website without knowing anything about design, HTML, CSS, PHP. Um, and like, I don't know, when I read that book, it, it helped me take a few of those risks, like teaching myself how to do things that I thought I wouldn't be able to do. Um, and I don't know, it's just a really cool story. Um, and I, I, I've read everything uh, Tim Ferriss has written, and I, I think that his writing has been a big influence on sort of my approach to, to business and what I want to get out of my life and how, you know, what, what does wealth mean, right? Does wealth mean money or does wealth mean owning your time? And how can those two play off of each other, right? So Tim Ferriss writes a lot about geo-arbitrage. And, you know, you mentioned living in Chiang Mai, right, for low cost of living. If you look at the expats who are living in Chiang Mai, they are running six, seven-figure software companies that they built because they moved to Chiang Mai and they have access to really cheap, uh, amazing talent, and they're able to sort of, um, you know, make that work for them. So I don't know. I was completely unaware of of these kind of like arbitrage moments and thinking about how to maximize my time and sort of these productivity hacks until I read that book. So I, I like to recommend that to most people who are thinking about starting a business. Yeah, I, I struggle with the same thing about it being kind of cliche because Tim Ferriss's work has probably in the last five years got me thinking about more things than any other single thing. He's he's just like, uh, you you brought up a bunch of them that I, really attracted me too, and and but I think primarily that it's this concept of like what is freedom is like what is wealth as you put it, mm-hmm. you know, and for twenty four or twenty five years you think it's being respected by I don't know like parents or whatever and having a prestigious job title and having a big salary and eventually getting a big house and getting fancy degrees and stuff, um, but. Freedom is really, to me now, freedom is 100% time and like my ability to spend that time working on things that I think are important and being able to create things rather than just do what I'm told. And Tim, like a lot of Tim's work is around like how to find that thing, how to make money from that thing, um, how to become world class at whatever it is that you're interested in doing. I, I just, I really respect the guy. Yeah. And I think so many people draw inspiration from real world examples and he's done a great job providing real-world examples. You know, like you said, you grow up and, and you think that success or, or life is about becoming a doctor, a lawyer, astronaut, fireman, policeman. Um, and then you read these stories of people who, you know, they live on the beach or in the mountains and they work X hours per day on their business. And, yeah, they might only be bringing in, let's say, forty or $50,000 a year, but they're so happy and they're able to work on projects that they're really passionate about, and they're able to you know, afford the kind of lifestyle that they want to live because they've sat down and mapped out the kind of lifestyle they want to live. I think that's what holds so many of us back. And you know, it's something I, I always struggle with is 10 years from now, you know, if you were to give me a billion dollars, and let's fast forward 10 years, like what, what do I want to be doing with my time? How do I want to be spending my days? I don't have that question answered yet. And I think until I answer that question, I won't really be able to get to that next step in sort of leveling up my life. Yeah. What, uh, huh. I have some other questions, but they kind of pale in comparison in terms of like importance. We're getting deep here, man. We're getting real deep. So, uh, if people want to learn more about you and what you do, where would you direct them? 
Yeah, um, I think the best way to find me is at alan-perlman.com. Uh, the site's under sort of con construction right now. Um, I just the the site got hacked at the end of last year, so I'm restoring it. Oh, um, but that's kind of like my my starting point for all the different projects I work on. My background is uh, is a traveler. All my travel posts are there. Uh, that was my original kind of blog that I set up after college. So that's a good sense of like who I am and what I'm up to. Cool. And then if anybody wants marketing help, check out extremeinbound.com or find me on Twitter at Alan Perlman. At the end of all this, I felt like it was a waste not to put a professional marketer to work on my own projects. At the time, I was working on repositioning the podcast, so I decided to ask Alan about a new name I was considering. Why we work or some play on that. What are your reactions? Um, I like that. I think I think why we work or, or sort of that positioning is just, you know, a tad stronger than something like working jobs because it gets at that core of what you're trying to do is you're trying to sort of connect a broader audience with a group of people who really enjoy what they're doing. That's all this week. Thanks to Alan for taking the time to come on the podcast and for the free micro consultation. If you want to learn more about him, alan-perlman.com is the place to go. If you want to learn more about me, tonyshang.com. Tell me what you thought of this episode at Tony Shang on Twitter. If you liked what you heard, please go into iTunes and leave a review. Special thanks to Ray Coletti for introducing me to Alan, and special thanks to you for tuning in.